But yeah, just just as long as it's not like two groups of people being combined into one person, that doesn't seem right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep, you get it. That you seems get, wrong. You get you get where I was going. Seems wrong from. on a lot of levels. Yes, huh? yeah, I do. Yep. Okay. But I think definitely over time, as you start to see, oh, it's pretty rare for me to feel hope of this type, and someone introduced me to a new species of hope. And it's like that's mm. that's an interest like that that now you have like a sort of data set that uh, would let you see that as a pretty strong sign. So a new species of hope. Can I can I drill into what that could mean? Sure. Well, so coaching is a, is always a tricky thing to talk about because it's subjective. Um, and like sure. the coach is trying to recognize all of the intricacy and uniqueness of your subjectivity while also kind of having a map of what human life is like, like and human experience is like. And they'll have things in their map and they'll be trying to see if those things are in your map and they'll be trying to see if they can show you things or if you want to discover something or if they can set you up for a discovery. And and so one of the things that can happen when the coach brings their information into the coaching context and is trying to share things with you is that they can create a possible experience for you that you would have not thought possible for yourself. Like they can create an experience for you which was in fact possible, which was just not in your landscape of possible experience. Does this work? Mm-hmm. Cool. All right. I think this could be this could be a good time to start. Let's try it with non-Andrew Bird. Hey everyone, you're now tuned into the inaugural episode of Any Thoughts On, the place where you can overhear skilled advisors, mentors, and practitioners talk about their craft. I'm T. Barnett, uh, joined here today by Emily Criteau. Hello, Emily. Hey, T. Hey. Thanks Emily, for having me on. Emily is my my coach as well, and moonlights as a, a bodywork practitioner, bodywork expert. And uh, hey, Emily. Fun fact about the song playing in the background. Mm. Uh, I chose it. I chose it for you. Uh, I was inspired by you. Interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I think the first thing to say about it is the vibe of the music. So I think it's very kind of like ethereal, otherworldly, but also like grounded in like a nice uh, homey way. I think this um, is what they used to mean by the term groovy. Actually. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> it occurs to me. It occurs to me all of a sudden. But you can you can this. you can hear this sort of like um, I don't know this otherworldly out of, from out of nowhere uh, mm -hmm. sort of inserts yeah. in the song, which I like a lot. I also think it's very intentional and arranged. It feels mm -hmm. that way to me, mm -hmm. um, and it's not just purely electronic or something like that. And it's mm -hmm. good natured also mm -hmm. is another thing I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. It reminds me, it's like good natured, upbeat. Uh, that's what I get from you. Um, it also reminds me of something that you may have told me explicitly, but I feel like you just sort of embody, which is like, you sort of just for, for select people in your life, mm -hmm. decide to give things away mm -hmm. and Keep giving and then hope that um, that comes back to you in both expected and unexpected ways. 
um, but not necessarily with the intention of getting anything back necessarily or um, trying to condition or get people to do what you want oh, or something, yeah. Yeah. which I like. I, think I that's... just quietly hope. Yeah, quietly hope. That's great. That's great. <laughs> quietly hope relating to the species of hope opening yep. that, that we have. Yep. Uh, seeing a bit of a theme there. So I was curious uh, what you thought about that selection. Like, if that were your theme song, how how would you feel walking around with that as your theme song? I I, I mean I think I could I think I could pull it off. I think um, there's a way it feels smooth that I think is not always my experience, but I liked certainly liked what you said. Um, <laughs> it feels like I would I would want to up my game a little bit, maybe get some cool sunglasses. Um, <laughs> But I feel like I could, I could roll with it. Yeah. Yeah, you'd mentioned that it sounds. Uh, you feel like it captured something like what they meant when they said groovy back groovy, in the day. Groovy. Yeah. The the reason we have the word groovy, sort of that ethereal but grounded. Oh, I didn't know that. I'm just making it up. Oh, I don't know. oh okay, okay. I, I'm not. I'm not saying. That. I'm not saying. I'm not saying. I I went and talked to those to those <laughs> originators, but I just like wonder about if that's what that that word was doing for some people yeah so. i mean you're hitting a groove maybe yeah you're there's hitting a, like there's a universal a groove, groove and it's like within the groove you get to be smooth like you get to move well mm-hmm. and um that's definitely something i think a lot about so can can relate i don't i think i also relate to the like struggles and tangles and thorns that you sometimes have to go through to get mm-hmm. to the groove so mm-hmm. it's sort of like maybe i relate to this song but i also imagine the production process to get there taking a bit of you know yeah less less smooth well also if i had like unlimited access to all songs i might have chosen one that was a little bit less arranged and polished mm-hmm. i really love yeah. the kind of music I do t- that's I do a little rougher like things that have a bit of a raw like yeah. a bit of a raw sound that's like you're kind of almost on the bleeding edge of like going out of control yes 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 as I upsides like and downsides, I feel like this song invites would invite me to be like a little bit more chill right, than right. maybe I always am. But mm-hmm. I feel like it's hard to say no to that, honestly. So, well, next yeah. time, listeners, uh, we'll we'll probably experience this again for whoever comes on. I'll try to select an opening song that kind of reminds me of them, and then maybe ask them something like, "How do you feel about the selection?" It was going to be a harder question, like, why do you think I chose this? But I think that's just, like, too much to, to put on somebody. So that that will be recurring. Uh, other things that will be recurring, at least for the first batch of episodes, a couple of questions that I hope will – the answers to which uh, that people provide, I hope will add several different frames for the listener, both people who are looking for coaching or working with a coach or people who are coaches – that uh, can help them basically make sense of of the whole interaction and, and get the most out of it. So the first question is, how would you know a coaching relationship is going well? And that's one I'll ask you, Emily, later on. And the second one is, how much should I pay? Which sounds like a very, both both sound like, well, maybe the first one sounds pretty complex. The second one sounds like pretty straightforward, but I think a lot of what we get into uh, actually highlights how it can be tricky to think about how to arrange your life and your resources and how to value major changes that can come from coaching. Uh, So how do you feel about fielding those two questions today, 
Yeah, absolutely. Nice. I think they're both pretty important. I think so too. I mean, the pay one sounds like like weirdly logistical, mm-hmm. some in a bit in a way, but it's also uh, going to be quite important for sustaining it and you know what you put into it and and all of that. So we'll we'll get into that a bit later. And then um, I was hoping, you know, before we kind of dive into your direct answers to those questions, I have this model to I have this model to present regarding question number one, how do you know a coaching relationship is going well? So I kind of wanted to start by handing you the model and then seeing like whether you disagree with it or what parts of it you'd like to comment on or refine or something like that. Uh, so can, can we start with that first? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, cool. So the, f- the model is, is basically three parts and it's something that I think people can take with them as they are... Yeah, searching for a coach or a therapist or, or some kind of practitioner in in this kind of area. And hopefully it can it can be good for, you know, just meeting ones and trying them out, but also useful for when you're a few sessions in, a handful of sessions in, we'll talk about how many sessions can can make sense there. Just making sense of how well the relationship is going and whether to continue, whether to pause, whether to stop it. So it's a three-part model, and the first one is thinking about how much optimism and hope the relationship is giving you. So that's number one. Number two is emotional resonance, and number three is reasonable expectations. So all of these are a spectrum, and all of these are, are pretty tricky for pretty much everybody to kind of like nail down in a quote-unquote objective sense or something. Um, but also holding these and getting increasingly familiar with them can be really helpful. Uh, I look at them as yeah a spectrum, but also if you if you hold this model together like these three things, they can be like three different dials, where you know dial one optimism hope will be like really high maybe, dial two emotional resonance is like medium, three is kind of like lower reasonable expectations, and depending on where those dials are for you that can determine um, or have implications for whether to continue the, the relationship or what else to to look for if you do continue it, something like that. So just to drill in a bit more, optimism, hope. So this could be self-explanatory, but essentially, you know, as you go through that first handful of sessions or something, do you feel uh, a certain optimism about making the progress that you want to make? And that can be that can be different from hope. Um, we talked uh, or the, the the earlier part of the episode. You know, you touched on um, species of hope and ways that you can be introduced to that that you didn't expect. And and so holding that and getting a sense of you know if that dials all the way down after several sessions, like that can be a pretty big issue. But in relation to the other dials, uh, it could still be okay to continue. And I'll kind of talk about that. So number two, the second dial is emotional resonance. So you may not know why something happened uh, because the practitioner you know, may be more privy to what's behind the curtain, so to speak, but maybe something moves for you. And this can lead to something that causes optimism or hope, or it can just be something that shifts and you're not quite sure what to make of it. But that can be significant nonetheless and potentially be an indicator that continuing would be a good idea. 
or lack thereof can mean that a lot of what you're experiencing in the interaction is flat for some reason. And maybe there's a way to change it in order to make it more resonant for you or to find someone else who can make it more resonant. And then dial three, reasonable expectations can be internal and external. So internal, you, you will have a certain set of expectations about how long it should take in order to get glimpses of hope or feel optimism or uh, have some, some emotional resonance. But also there's a sense in which the outside view or external understandings of what a reasonable expectation is could play a part in your determination here. So when you encounter a practitioner, do they say, oh, it typically takes this long in order to make a certain amount of progress or something like that? And that can play into your approximations of like your internal expectations because you may not have known from the inside how long something should take. And so, you know, deferring in some sense can be a good idea and kind of like trusting the process and so on and so forth. So those are three dials. And, you know, you can reflect on a, a given batch of sessions with a practitioner and ask yourself, you know, number one, am I feeling optimism or hope about making the progress I want to make, solving what I want to solve, in other words, so to speak. The second one, am I feeling emotional resonance in these sessions? And uh, to what degree? So that's, you know, a dial again. And of course, you can make a lot of progress without emotional resonance. So, you know, that's important too. And three is, uh, is this kind of progressing along according to reasonable expectations I have? So just wanted to outline those again and yeah, toss that to you, Emily. I'm curious if you if you have thoughts on on this model here. It does seem to me like those metrics are something that you can calibrate over time. So it's like if you've only ever tried one coach, it might not be very informative to check those things and really know. Okay, this this seems like it'll make sense to keep going, or it won't. But I think definitely over time, as you start to see, oh, it's pretty rare for me to feel hope of this type and someone introduced me to a new species of hope and it's like that's mm. that's an interest like that that now you have like a sort of data set that uh would let you see that as a pretty strong sign so a new species of hope can i can i drill into what that could mean sure well so coaching is a, is always a tricky thing to talk about because it's subjective um and like sure. the coach is trying to recognize all of the intricacy and uniqueness of your subjectivity while also kind of having a map of what human life is like, like and human experience is like. And they'll have things in their map and they'll be trying to see if those things are in your map and they'll be trying to see if they can show you things or if you want to discover something or if they can set you up for a discovery. And, and so one of the things that can happen when the coach brings their information into the coaching context and is trying to share things with you is that they can create a possible experience for you that you would have not thought possible for yourself. Like they can create an experience for you, which was in fact possible, which was just not in your landscape of possible experience. And so this might be that they ask you a question that no one, like both no one has ever asked you before and you've never thought to ask yourself about some topic that matters a lot. And as you try to even just do the work of formulating your answer, it starts to change your experience of the problem domain in a way which shows you a bunch more than you had thought was possible. So that would be like potentially 
a, a new hope. So it's like, uh, for instance, in a in a relationship, if you were feeling really stuck and despairing about not being able to get some aspect of your experience taken seriously, a coach might be able to ask a question about what kinds of communication attempts you've made that lets you realize that your communication attempts have not been very well thought through. And so actually your experience, this really you know, unfortunate experience of not being taken seriously might be able to be transformed through more skillful communication. And here's someone sitting across from you whose time you have a local monopoly on who might be able to help you actually build the beginnings of those skills and let you see what you can change in the relationship dynamic. That would be an example. That's a great example. example. And uh, so I, I, I pulled you off of the, the main track by <laughs> asking about species of hope. So I was wondering if you yeah. if you felt like you wanted to return to that. Yeah, I think um, kind of as to the three dimensions, I sort of wanted to say what I was saying about how it can evolve over time because that's sort of a, that's true for all three. Like you'll you'll calibrate if you if you're regularly asking yourself some version of those questions you will like become more calibrated over time about what different answers mean for different people different issues different coaching contexts so i wanted to just say that because that's true for all of them and then yeah especially the first two i think are really important as subjective checks but then they come with all of the caveats of correctly interpreting subjective experience. So it's like, you know, you had the experience. You have a guess about what the experience is really about. And then it can sometimes take a while to validate if you actually have correctly interpreted your own experience. And so I think with both hope and emotional resonance, you can feel hope because someone was telling you what you wanted to hear. Or you can feel hope because you've you've seen the light of a new possibility or the the you know, you've been shown a new mechanism for how the world could work. You've been shown a new possible vision for a future, you've been introduced to a new idea or a new source of ideas. And so, you know, many of those will be genuine and, and good good lights to follow. And then it is possible to be, you know, if 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 you are a person who has a desire to be deceived about certain things and someone just really plays up that aspect then you can also have a misaligned hope and so yeah okay so in in you saying that i know what you mean yeah but i i think some people might struggle with i have a desire to be deceived yeah so that that would be like an unconscious desire typically yeah right? it would be an it would be an unconscious desire which, which i would say which, which crests into consciousness often around what your feeling is when someone tries to bring you the information you don't want to hear when they try to bring you non-deception you might feel triggered. You might feel really anxious. You might feel really put on the spot. You might feel like you need to push it away. And then there might be some other way of being treated where you are being flattered or indulged or you're just told a simple, sweet story that you don't have to think more about. And you really prefer the second. <laughs> you really just like the first. And you try to set up situations so you'll get a lot more of the second than the first. Um, and so you may not like consciously feel yourself pulling towards you know, non-reality or pulling towards misinformation, but you're pulling towards an experience that is not containing important truth. Yeah. Yeah. And just to piggyback off that, it is is often what people try to do something like try to get more of the second, mm -hmm. which is be in situations where they will receive the information in a way that's to their liking. Yep. 
but like also harbor a hope behind that, which is something like, well, maybe this time will be different Mm -hmm. and it will turn out better than I sort of know it will likely turn out, but either just a new situation. So maybe I'll roll the dice again or things are like slightly better, but it could probably turn out roughly the same. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, and I think also in that space, a lot of the reason we prefer not to hear certain information is actually because we have an accurate model of how hard it would be to metabolize that information. So I'll also say that the desire mm. to be deceived, I don't categorize as like always a vice or like always mm. uh, a sign of weakness or always a sign of poor character. The way I think about it is much more like we in life are not always fully prepared for everything that the world throws at us and when we're not prepared we have different opportunities to charge in despite being unprepared or to kind of back away and hope we get another opportunity or to ask someone else to come in and protect us and and so you know a a reaction that like avoids certain information or tries to shield or protect from certain information can just be like yeah actually maybe you're not prepared to handle this in this environment and that can be that can be right. And in a coaching context, to some degree, it is on the coach to try to get the person first feeling capable of getting the information uh, before putting them in the situation where they would have to have to. So if you feel unexpectedly capable of, of handling a problem, it could also be a sign that the coach is, is really helping you and meeting you mm-hmm. and helping you get there. So it's not always it's like not a one way or the other thing, but just insofar as hope functions as a feedback mechanism, there is like that kind of dangerous case it strikes me and i might be taking us in a different direction Mm. but it's that if a lot of this is a bit like a refinable compass type of thing you know a lot a lot of these dimensions that we talked about then underlying that is probably going to need to be a hope as well that putting in the time to understand your experience and to get it wrong and all sorts of things and find out some of the things that you're talking about is worth doing, maybe trying multiple coaches is worth doing, multiple yeah. therapists, whatever, to see if that works. And I'm wondering, why might it be desirable for someone to hold the hope that they can refine their sense of some oh. of these dimensions about telling whether a relationship is good for them, about whether a practitioner can help them, things like that. Because... I mean, there's a telos to that question, I guess. It's like, maybe they shouldn't. Mm-hmm. In the case where they just have never tried and they don't really know, yep. what are some reasons why maybe they it would be good for them to to do that? Yeah. This is sort of like, why why activate into the mindset of proactively trying to get better at using this kind of feedback? Is that a little bit of the the question yeah and then this kind of feedback what what would you define as this kind of feedback being like how well calibrated you are about different different attempts to to receive help to work on yourself to self-improve how well calibrated you are on whether those are working or whether those are good something like that yeah, sort of like and, and kind of using emotional indicators yeah absolutely and, and getting increasingly better at that yeah absolutely so generally, like I would say, I think there are a couple different kinds of answers and there are different kinds of skeptics also to that whole proposition if you were to 
convert it from a question into a this is a good thing to go in this direction. Right. I, I think a, a big reason that it's worth doing is because no one else will be in the position other than you to build an actually good model there. Mm. So for yourself. If, for yourself, for you in particular, what is what is the next thing you need? What is the next step you should take? There are going to be many different types of specialists with many different types of knowledge about how people work and what works for certain people and how to do the thing that they've seen work. And those are frequently presented at a level of generalization that is broader than an individual. And so you're almost always going to be in the position of having to exercise some personal judgment about whether it's a good fit for you or not. And if you're the sort of person who doesn't want to exercise that judgment, you'll get talked into trying everything. You'll you'll somehow get an effect from everything. Even talking yourself into Oh that. yeah, yeah. You'll <laughs> I know plenty of people that are just yeah. And 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 what will happen is whatever the other person says is progress, you'll be like, that's progress for today until someone else tells me a different thing is progress. And you'll just keep kind of getting spun around and probably wound up and and some things will actually open for you and some things will change for you, but it's sort of like the captain, the captain of the ship won't be steering the ship. And so it sort of will depend a lot on the virtue of the people trying to help you, how good a job they're able to do. And also just the, the sort of winds of chance that put different opportunities in front of you. So, so I think it's, it's sort of like you're the only one in a position to do it well. And you might still say, well, even if I'm the only one in that position, I don't think I can do a good job. So maybe no one can do it well. So maybe the whole you know, the whole venture is not a very sound one. And and I think that, I think as far as criticisms go, it's a good one because not everyone feels like they have the time or the band, bandwidth or the resources to invest in developing that skill. And what I would say- just, And they're right. Yeah. And and they and can be right. Right. Like you were saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 100%. They just don't have, their their lives are busy. They don't yeah. have the ability to- yeah. And and you can say, I like the way that I am right now. I have some flaws. I have some rough edges and uh, and they're not crippling. And I'm going to I want to do my life this way. That yeah. said, there's a lot of evidence from different spiritual traditions around the world, religions and also specialist cultures that people can improve with training. You can get a lot of different results with training and um, also that kind of from more on the side of um, neurophysiology, that nervous systems can be in more or less, you know, high stress states for more or less of the time one is around, alive, spending their days. And and that some of these kinds of training can change the brain and can change the experience. So I would just say, like, there's at least evidence to believe that there are directions one can be choosing to grow in. Like, the idea that growth is possible is not fake. And I think you can believe that because you believe that spiritual traditions have something cool going on, or you can believe it because you look at the uh, the EKGs and can see that the brain can change in cool ways, depending on what kind of evidence you like. And even into adulthood. Yeah, even into adulthood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I run into a lot of people that, that have a belief that the plasticity of the brain is basically, you know, very fixed by the time yeah. you're in your late 20s to early 30s. Yeah. And there are some really great books out there that, yeah. that uh, unlocking the emotional brain. Yeah, exactly. Comes to mind, and and uh, immediately, you know. And I'm not going to say what set of evidence should be persuasive for for people of a sort of more right. modern, more secularized, but also spiritually curious audience. You know what 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 might be persuasive to any given person? I think 
quite variable, but there's just like really quite a lot of different things you could be persuaded by if you like allow yourself to go in that direction at all. So sometimes, and and I have to be very careful with choosing the time and the person to to do this with. Mm -hmm. But for people who are less experienced but quite skeptical about being able to grow along certain dimensions, and we may even be working through a session, and it's like their mind or part of their mind will not allow them to consider that they could have hope in this area or grow in a certain area. A lot of times we will turn a lot of this, like a technique is to turn skepticism on the skepticism. Yeah, definitely. It's like people's skeptical or cynical parts of mind are actually like really unrealistically sure that things yes. will work, which is really funny. It's like all the ways in which like the skeptical or cynical parts of their mind are using these like tricky, you know, technical fancy ways of assessing risk and like how, you know, there's actually a low probability that such and such will work out, you know, in, in some cases. Yeah. Do not in fact kind of turn some of that on on itself. Yeah. But I always I, I often feel that an antidote to some of that is just planting a seed for people and then like letting them go off and see a seed of skepticism about their skepticism. Yeah. And then kind of let them go off and, and try stuff and destabilize some of the skepticism a bit and see where they go with that. Yeah. 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 And and see also what what can be a source of knowledge or a source of self-justification if one isn't using the skepticism. It can always be really interesting. Because it, it my experience is often turns out people were all, we're already using a broader set of sources of meaning and solidity and security than just the like highest epistemic standard you could imagine they were just kind of doing it without acknowledging exactly it was happening yeah or or claiming to themselves that the skepticism had been run on everything they believe when it had actually been run on a targeted number of things and then lots of things were sort of just allowed in grandfathered in you know convenient things to just let function as they will and not interrogate and, and I think that's valid. I think a lot of things like skepticism, you know, are typically developed in like highly discursive, you know, kind of deep social processes. And they're they're very useful for interacting with mental content from other people. And then we have lots of beliefs that we may or may not have ever shared. And so it makes sense to me that, you know, it, I don't think of a skeptic as a, as a hypocrite if I discover that they haven't been thoroughly skeptical about their own skepticism or about everything that they think about yeah no i in I, defense um, of skeptics yeah <laughs> yeah no i mean i mean it's funny that you say that because i guess it's just the nature of a lot of the people that i encounter is that they they often don't need a defense oh yeah because no. because of how skeptical they really are <laughs> okay anything anything that was just on if hope. we were to yeah return yeah yeah so that was on the hope dimension yep definitely i would say as far as emotional resonance goes one of my i wouldn't certainly not a personal teacher but one of the psychologists that i feel like i've learned the most from um, eugene jenlin would say in his practice that he feels that the the transformation of the sort of emotional body or the physical body even through introspection or self-interrogation is sort of his gold standard for uh, is is a positive change happening is the person moving in the direction of their own development, life, health, 
flourishing. And so as far as standards go, I think that one is very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and the the only thing I would add to it is that the durability matters just as a way to and and not not ne- not necessarily to say the durability is essential like it, durability in the sense that the change kind of stays with you as a as a meaningful thing or if something opens that it stays open so not everything will by any means um stay open for long after a session but it's worth calibrating over time does it feel like it's integrating or is it reversing because there are certain kinds of changes where it's just like if you're in a really if you're put in a really special mood, you're given a really special experience, it can feel like a big opening that's just not something that actually even you created yourself that someone else created for you. That's not necessarily going to be something you're carrying forward now in your life. And so I think it's a great check and then it's more likely to be more true and like more correct for you if it's something you brought forth as opposed to if the other person brought it forth. And and some people will not even have had the experience of another person bringing that kind of thing forth for them. Um, not everyone wants to go there. For some people, that feels very weird. I wouldn't necessarily even mention it, except that I, I've seen it happen, and I've also seen some people who sort of more specialize in that side of transformative work. And so it's it's something that I think is worth naming, but it's not my specialty. Well, one funny thing about the durability sub-dimension of the emotional resonance dimension that we've talked about between us in, in previous calls has been that sometimes you will have what we would call an update or sort of like an emotional shift, a felt shift, and it will almost make you forget what you were addressing for like the whole session or what you were working on. So I'm wondering what your thoughts on durability are in terms mm-hmm. of that, because I, I'm guessing that you're going to say something like durability and it being top yeah. of mind are not really the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but like it's it's almost like so not top of mind that it locks in and you just like have amnesia about ever needing help with that thing in the first place. And I Definitely guess that not. could be the yeah. role of the coach to be like, remember you came here with this and you know it was bothering you a lot and maybe refer to your journals and things if you have them but uh, i'm wondering yeah how how just want to play with the concept of durability a little bit here definitely yeah it can go a lot of different directions i think i think i used to be less strict about this but these days I take memory gaps as pretty strong signs of some important discontinuities uh, in the person's experience that are probably indicative that I've missed something important as a coach. So I think in the past it was more uh, common for me, and I don't know how common this is in your practice, but uh, more common for me to say, oh yeah, like there was something this person just wasn't paying attention to. It was having a big effect on their experience. We like brought that up in session we worked on that we got a change there it's it's sort of flowing through but they didn't ever really have much of a relationship to that thing and now it's kind of going back underground and now they feel different but maybe it's not really clear in their own story of themselves what that was or why that happened these days i would i would suspect myself if i produce that kind of story in my own experience and the other person is just like no it's always been this way this is like this is you know i don't i don't really know what you're talking about that i would be like ah i think we probably kind of bypassed how the person's self-understanding 
was expecting this to go. Like we sort of like worked through something without having the self-understanding know what was happening. And I would sort of more suspect myself of having felt inconvenienced by the person's self-understanding and kind of wanted to like really help them even in spite of themselves. And and these days I, I normally think if I'm trying to help them in spite of themselves, I'm probably kind of picking sides in their own internal conflict in a way that's not um, maybe going to be good for them long-term. That's, that's one answer. And then despite that, you know, I'll say people can have really powerful things happen that they don't understand and that's fine. And you can't always, you know, you won't always have the opportunity to have a really coherent self-experience, especially because a lot of people have issues with self-fragmentation and memory fragmentation in their daily lives. It's not actually just a coaching related issue. And so when you're working around things like that, yeah, definitely just like, yeah, journals, kind of explicit stories that you share with other people about what's going on for you, I think are a really good source of uh, like reminders about continuity. And then also if you notice discontinuities, like giving yourself permission to go back and try to dig out what actually did happen and spend some time like why is it actually important to not remember this for some reason because maybe there's something you're avoiding or did you just like lose track because you briefly became a little overwhelmed or a little confused and the way you put yourself back together left some things out. And, and now that you're giving yourself the opportunity, it's not actually that hard to build it back in. So I'm generally, I'm generally now more in favor of more unified experiences through through that kind of stuff, but also, um, you know, recognize that there are limitations to that. Unfortunately, like because a lot of us are carrying, you know, some some memories of times when it was important to not know what was going on or to not know who we were, to not know what was happening to us, and so those those come out. Yeah, this touches on questions of attribution also, where in my practice, a lot of people will have shifts and then maybe multiple shifts, regard like emotional shifts regarding things. And then all of a sudden, they will find that their baseline emotional happiness state or something is very much improved and they don't really know to what to attribute that. And I don't know if you would want to call that like, quote unquote sophistication, because I feel like that's a little bit condescending, like, you know, it's really hard in general to know where things came from, you know, emotionally, but it's sort of like, I could see how in a world where that compass is not refined all that much, and you've been doing some work with someone, and you've been kind of helping them through things, and there have been shifts in multiple sessions, and then at the end of a few months, actually, this happens to me pretty frequently at the end of the few months the person will be like you know i'm trying to do like a, a root cause you know analysis that's not the right word but like a, i'm trying to explain what single thing is responsible for you know me experiencing this higher baseline of happiness and i'm not sure i want to attribute it to your coaching uh-huh. and what we've done i feel yeah. like you know i've been exercising more in the summer but where the discontinuity exists could also be confusion about kind of direct lines of causation with some of these emotional shifts or updates that they might have, which I, I think is like fair, fair, fair play, you know, yeah. um, to some degree. But I would say for the people who I guess are going through some coaching sessions, trying to figure out whether it's quote unquote worth it or not, or doing something for them. Yeah. 
then yeah, like you said, you know, breaking it down, seeing what happened there, trying to get a sense of mechanistically why there was a shift and maybe what effects it could be having can be really helpful in, in considering what went on there yeah. and, and all of that. Yeah. But it can definitely, I mean, I think it, it's not something that sort of thing I, I think is very hard to just get right or just know the answer to because it's an area where your intuition isn't necessarily like an oracle of truth. It's like an oracle of some information about itself, but it's like, you know, if, if you go to a party and 12 different things happen at the party and at the end of the party you feel a certain way, it's quite hard. You can say, OK, well, like this is sort of how I'm feeling in the aftermath of this party, but it can be really hard to get the actual linkages squared away in your own experience. And generally, you know, as far as technique goes, I would say that there are a lot of different kinds of methods for what you might call like clarifying the emotions. So like taking the emotion from a state of, wow, there's just like a lot of energy here. It has like positive parts. It has weird parts. It's kind of cloudy. It's kind of squishy to like, oh, that's interesting. Like I'm getting really distinctive imagery about what's going on with this. I'm getting actual memories of like, okay, you know, we were at this whole party, but there was this one conversation, which is really connected to me starting to feel a particular way. And, and sort of just like getting more like of a textured, set of relationships between the emotion and representations of other parts of the world that are not just your emotions and, and starting to kind of be able to to make at least informed guesses about that, I think is really valuable. And it's it's not the same as a fully abstract model of how you work, because the emotion is like a an experiential model. It's an experience. Um, and so you have to sort of treat it as a different kind of computational object if you want to think computationally and, and plenty of people don't about the emotions and I don't know if it's the best way to do it but um you do have to sort of treat it differently as you try to also still clarify it and and ask it or cooperate with it to have it disclose more detail about what it means I love one phrase that you threw out there which was like intuition is not truth essentially mm -hmm. and I feel like I either come into contact with people who basically operate under an assumption like that or people mm -hmm. that operate under something like intuitions not to be trusted ever. Yeah. And yeah, may, yeah. but so, so that's what they endorse, I should say. I think yeah. they, they probably live according to their intuitions in ways that they wouldn't really want to admit uh, the second yeah. class of people. And then I'm wondering whether you feel like it's some it's something like the intuition can be a source of valuable data points and processing power the yep. value of which depends on the person definitely depends on the person also depends on the like the training of the person it depends on what relationship you've built with yourself and with your intuition already um, because there are people who really prioritize that who find that it's actually not that hard for them to make sense of what's going on for them and get an answer what it means to even get an answer could even be controversial for some people but i think for people of many traditions who get at least a couple clicks in, what it means to get an answer is you now have a, an understanding of yourself in relationship to some part of the world, which is such that when you act on that understanding, your anticipations for how things will go and what it will feel like for you match up. Yeah, yeah. Like you're it's sort of you're predictive. building out. 
yeah, you're building out your self, your self expectation mm -hmm. uh, as you relate to the world. Which includes also like an element absolutely of truth, like how well are you understanding how the world will behave when you when you act? And then how well are you understanding how the world's behavior will affect you? There's like a couple different links that sort of you can have a block in different places in that in that causal graph. And I, I wanted to just mention one, one other thing on the topic of people trusting or not trusting the intuition, mm -hmm. but also just people trying to process emotions in general, in general, which is one reason this kind of thing can be uncomfortable or, or quite difficult, not to mention just the difficulty of causal modeling, is that um, a lot of people for many good reasons, may not want to discover that they are being affected by the world in ways that they are, in fact, being affected. <laughs> and so it can sort of be a matter What's of that mean? personal... It can be like a matter of personal pride or a matter of like one's own sense of self, boundary, or discipline that you aren't affected by certain things, but maybe you are. And so, you know, I think the sort of the like it's so classic, maybe it's not fair, but I, I feel like the the all too classic, you know, is the guy who is trying to be serious, disciplined, productive, focused, who kind of loses track of what's going on or loses his head uh, if an attractive woman is around and giving him a certain kind of attention. I think, you know, I think that's that's very classic. Where there are, there, are, there are absolutely are guys who are like, ah, you got me. Like, yep, that's me. There are also guys who who will still lose attention, but will deny it. And like, will just pretend that they're focused and sort of be in self-denial about how how their own experience has changed. And um, and then that that generalizes to all sorts of things. So why would I think, someone you know, for deny women, it? Oh, <laughs> well, is it um, sort of like it's bad for me to have my attention stolen in this way or well, it doesn't fit with my can self concept a... as a efficient human being who doesn't get distracted by certain things it could be either of those I think almost more commonly there will be pre-existing social interpretations of what it means to have certain reactions to things so much more like if I get distracted by a woman, then I'm a creeper oh, and I don't man. want to be a creeper. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And 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 there will be different versions of this. So I, I was just thinking, OK, well, is there is there a corresponding canonical kind of stereotype that's like oh. cl close enough to. Oh, sorry. I, no, I, I, I just thought I could share one for myself. And this is great. It's kind of touching on. Oh. I could share some, yeah, yeah, some go personal ahead. things there. Go ahead. I have, I think, I have one, too, that I'll share. OK, yeah, but go ahead. I think a belief that I have in that area is since you mentioned the sort of social expectations loaded onto a reaction like that, I think mine would be something like, it says something about the quality of my attention. If I'm able to be distracted in that way, like I really wish that I could in, in, in a Seinfeld episode, they talk about, I think it's Mickey Mantle who has this kind of like blackout sense of focus and uh, that's why he was so good as a batter. And then they see him in the coffee shop and he has this blackout sense of dipping a donut in a coffee, which is pretty hilarious. And, and Kramer's trying to like yelp and get his attention and just can't do it. And, and for some reason that always stuck with me where I was sort of like, I, if I'm writing and I want to be digging in the deepest channels of whatever I can in order to create, I don't like the idea that my attentional focus will be distracted by, you know, a, a, a beautiful shape walking by. And mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't want to admit that and would try to train myself against that. And that's pretty funny, actually, yeah. just because like, 
it could be yeah. such a low like if i were coaching myself it could be <laughs> such a it could be such a trivial thing as like is it fine if your eyes dart there for a second and then you go back to your you know deep yeah. channeling creative exercise yeah. And be like, yeah that's probably fine you know and then yeah and then there are people who will be like well i really want to test myself so like what's actually important in the test is my eyes go but then i can bring them back and i really want that feeling of like knowing i can resist the temptation yeah it can, it can get very yes. very elaborate you know some like because and people always have that intuition sometimes when a person is like really loudly against something that they might simultaneously be kind of mysteriously drawn to the thing that they're being so loudly against and you know you, you hear this obviously this is a, a fair a fair group i think um, because of our cultural moment to criticize you hear this sometimes in like people talking about the historical Christian priesthood where it's like they were so against sex and they would have these big books of all the different specific sex acts that they were completely, completely against. And you sort of, you have the modern, the modern gaze looks at that and, and says, mm, you know, they were really interested in thinking about in detail, all the things they didn't like. And, and so, you know, you, you can definitely run into things like that where you're like, you're so disciplined, but partially the reason you have the appearance of discipline is because there's a little, there's a little crack yeah. and, and, and then homosexuality you know, that that you right know, just right. all yeah all of the effort that's expended into you know right not being that or not engaging right exactly with that. yeah exactly and so that ties back to this idea that there can be like social labels where the person may not even be trying to avoid the state itself but they're really avoiding the whatever will cause the social label to get applied to them and like there can be like even very little question about what's actually true because like being being actually a creeper and like being judged to be a creeper might be very different behavioral things for instance and and i was just thinking like you know what what sorts of things go on go on for women sometimes in this space like i know for myself there will be situations where i will just like decide regardless of whether i feel safe or not that i'm just going to like not show fear <laughs> like just like where maybe and i think this is changing now there's like a lot of kind of cultural conversation about when you should speak up about not feeling safe but i think historically for me i was pretty easily intimidated but it seemed sort of like the way to get through that was just to like not show it no matter what and yeah that can make it very tricky to interpret what's going on with the intuition because it's like okay well my memory is going to be that i wasn't afraid and other people's memory of me is going to be that i wasn't afraid but then somewhere in there buried in my experience was an actual fear that i was suppressing so mm. can be very tricky or, or i th what i thought you were going to say was their memory of you was that you were reticent or afraid in some way your memory well, was be. that you were fine and depends then, on it depends okay. on how how good i was being <laughs> at it right or it depends right. on the social interpretation right right um and and i think also this is another area where it's like as as the social interpretations change the behavior that is sufficient to create the cover story changes and so like things things right now i would say I, and, and actually you can see this happening these days where people will say i didn't do anything wrong she didn't say she was uncomfortable. She didn't look uncomfortable. It seemed like it was a perfectly fine interaction. Why am I getting this harassment allegation? It was like, like the person's self-model of their own behavior is very clean, like clean, clean report card. Um, but then somehow, like what was actually going on in the subjectivity of another person is being brought forth in a new form that is 
which is so crazy because they could be telling the truth about their own record, report card. <laughs> yes. And you could feel bad for them in a weird way. Yes. About, yeah. And they could be totally well, and, caught off guard by that happening in a better case scenario. Yeah. yeah. And I, I mentioned this also, like, not to sort of randomly, you know, explode a bunch of, like, politically kind of sensitive, socially and politically sensitive territory, but because this kind of stuff can come into coaching interactions where people will say, hey, I had this interaction with a person that went really weird and I can't tell what the lines actually were and I can't tell if I crossed the line or if I needed to be managing my behavior well or what sign I might have been giving and my my ability to interpret myself has kind of hit a wall and so maybe I can get a little bit of help in this session making sense of this so at least when whenever like there is follow-up whatever form the follow-up takes I'll know what my story is and like how I want to represent my own subjectivity to potentially to judgment or at least, you know, to showing up in a conversation that's a little bit more heavy, a little more serious. So That would be such a great, entirely separate subject for a podcast, <laughs> but really, really great. That would be phenomenal. Yeah. 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 Probably, probably more caveats to give about just how complex the, the subject matter is, but oh, yeah, but yeah definitely. Definitely. It matters to a lot of people. It matters, especially when like the social rules you learned how to follow are no longer the norm that a group that you have to coordinate with is following. Very, very challenging. So very, very challenging also when people try to unilaterally change the rules in a group and you have to like figure out what to do about that. So I think it also matters i get this sense for women who are embarking on trying to find a new coach and typically a lot of coaches are male and and that there are dynamics happening and levels of security and safety that people are feeling on both sides and that yeah. is just trickier you know i've talked about this you know off off mic before uh, yep. about there are just dynamics that are happening unconsciously subconsciously but also things that you have to monitor and look out for that just don't occur so much in like a same-sex pairing or something like that yeah or with, even with a female coach and a, a male coachee something like that yeah absolutely yeah yeah and i think yeah it's like depending on the power relation depending on the maturity and the self-awareness of the people depending on what agreements it's possible to be explicit about you know you can create a lot of different kinds of containers for coaching to happen. But I, I definitely will mentally kind of pretty early in sessions note if there are areas where I'm like, oh, if we're starting to get too close to this topic or too close to this edge, there's a conversation we need to have before we go there. And, you know, and here are the things that I should prepare in my, in myself to be ready for that conversation. Cause I think, I always think with coaching, it's the coach's responsibility. You can't be fully responsible for another person's experience but you can at least do you know do everything that you can anticipate or do whatever's needed to prepare for whatever you can anticipate that might require extra of you extra conscientiousness or extra thoughtfulness yeah i i think a version of this for me is something like where are the edges for for which if we happen to cross that line they would not be mm -hmm. able to capably emotionally handle it Yep. For for whatever reason, that's not to say yep. any judgment on them. I'm sure I have lines like that as well or something. But 
there are some, yeah, the difference between people, as you say, is, is tremendous, where there are some people that can just talk about sexuality and all things to do with that in a lot mm -hmm. of ways. And I can help them with that. I can help them with their relationships and things. And it's be because they have such a, a certain type of emotional relationship to that content and yep. a way of grasping it and holding it that it's fine allowing someone like me to come in there with my profile and a yep. specific way of helping them with that. It, it's all fine in that area. Whereas I get the feeling with other, other people, there are just different lines and that's okay where I can't really be invited anywhere near that because even my presence, like in approaching that line, even like being being in the line of sight, you know, on the horizon, yeah. Yeah, yeah, coming yeah. close to that line can affect a lot of things within that territory or something yep. because of things that may have happened or because of my profile and how it may map on to previous profiles of people that they dealt with or something like that for, for whatever reason. Yep. Yeah. That's a really yeah, interesting, definitely. that's a really interesting thing to bring up maybe for coaches who are just starting out or maybe coaches who are just sort of thinking through past experiences that they've had where it's like, I don't really get why this, this didn't work very well, or I don't really get yeah. why I triggered them in some way. This is like what I do with everybody. You know, I'm really yep. good at it. I feel like I'm really, I attend to safety checks and I like have pretty good models in this space. And yet it just went like horribly, terribly wrong in this instance, yep. or even yep. like subtly, like I could feel that that person's like hair, on the back of their neck was standing on end and it's strange because this works so well in, in so many other contexts. Yep. And I think that can be, yeah, some, some answer there. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I always think with coaching that the skill gradient for a coach is like getting more adaptable to more different types of people kind of coming in with different levels of personal skill, personal awareness, knowing what they need, needing different kinds of help. And you can always just take those people and say, well, you know, I may or may not be able to continue as their coach, but I can still acknowledge that they've alerted me to a growth edge in my own practice. And you might still, you know, choose not to work on that growth edge for any number of reasons. Of course, it's not. I wouldn't say it's anyone's job to grow because they've been presented with an opportunity to grow. But it can be very helpful, at least, to know that the world is constantly giving you information about where you might have that opportunity. Well, maybe... Uh version of that that's maybe more live in my case is you're presented a mm. growth edge and your ego makes you want to take it on yep yep or or the social expectation yeah. of you being in such and such role and being good at handling that is such yeah. that you don't want to be seen as someone who can't do that very well yeah and that you're bad in filling that role because you're not so skillful at at dealing with that. Yeah, I definitely, I think I kind of ended up getting talked out of that by being given extremely long transformative quests by certain people, not on purpose, just by my desire to meet them and their desire to be met, meeting over a very large distance of misunderstanding. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think, um, and, and I think some of that actually also comes back to the, what is the social template what is the social expectation about how similar any two people are? I, I think we typically support some interface for communication 
that's adequate, but usually is not a very full representation of the human on the other side. And so I think the distance between people can be very great, even though the appearance is that we're at least all able to have a conversation together. Yeah, I was going to say that's like universally the case, right? And then yeah. it's about how how janky some of that is and yeah, issues that also, it causes. And... Absolutely. Well, we didn't quite cover the last topic. Reasonable expectations. Yeah, no, I mean, I think for me, all that stuff, um, I'll, I'll say this, it's up to you whether you want to include it, but I think for me, a lot of this stuff is it's like actually building the meta model, I would say helps a lot with the question of what is a reasonable expectation in the same way it helps with the question of what is a like well-grounded hope and the question of what is a like meaningful resonant experience to trust that all these things just become more reliable the more you expose yourself to opportunities to learn about yourself by receiving you know coaching or trying transformational techniques or reading really deep books and or journaling or any number of things you might be doing to learn about yourself. Um, they just get better over time, assuming you are drawing from enough different sources that you're not just getting deeper and deeper into a single rut. So I was just that's, going that's to all I, would say I about think that. I was just going to say that or I was going to add something like a frequent experience of some of my clients is that our frameworks beget more frameworks or frameworks beget more questions and that's frustrating to them because they're like well what does it mean to have well-grounded intuition and then they'll be like why don't you tell me some indicators of well-grounded intuition and that's fine and i can and i can do that and i agree with you yeah. that even trying to create a model of something can be really clarifying in a lot of ways but i wonder if you have what, what your answer might be to that person who's like you say something like uh, that that raises this thing that you could think more about, you know, for next time and whatever. And they're sort of like, I don't really know how to even start thinking about yeah. a well-grounded intuition or something like that. Like, how would I know? Yeah, I try not to give people that kind of homework, honestly. I, I really, I would say, I'm dodging your question rather than answering it. I would say generally, I don't trust people to do things outside of session unless their innate curiosity has grabbed it and I've seen it grab it in session. And I'm like, cool, I think you just will think about that more. So I'll encourage you to do what you're probably going to do anyway. Oh, that's um, a good, that's a good pointer generally. If it's something, especially if it's like we came up with a really clear like verbal or more discursive or more abstract understanding of something but like their emotional sense of it is still pretty fuzzy i usually just like say we'll come back to that and like we can pick it up here and also probably things will evolve between now and then and it'll look a little different when we come back to it so i kind of don't take the abstract stuff as i wouldn't call it my gold standard i would call it my like sort of like trying to build a bridge to like get to a place where we can start bringing the emotional stuff into the right kind of focus and allow it to do what it needs to do to help the person grow um, or to facilitate the next growth step unless like for whatever reason they just really like ideas and then like it's just enjoyable for them to have ideas to think about but but yeah I would say if it, I would say generally if I'm opening up too many questions, I might be accidentally overwhelming a person and I would kind of try to 
catch myself if I'm over eager because we're in an area where I get excited. This, you, you've seen me do this because <laughs> um, we sometimes talk about things I get excited with about. enjoyment. Yes. Yeah. No, but 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 it can be a problem because I'm like too eager to communicate something that for them is like there. It's just dawning for them that that thing exists, and I'm like wanting to give them. You know, in the same way, if a if a parent, you know, their child is playing with blocks, but like you know, their tower is falling over and the parent comes and sits down and it's like, I'm going to build the best tower. And it's like, the kid didn't care about building the best tower. Like the kid was like learning dexterity and learning like their own spatio-temporal stuff and their own aesthetic sense. And it's like the parent missed the plot. Um, I, I'm always careful. Like if I'm, if I'm putting people, you know, too much in a position where they feel like this is a lot of complexity, but it's not, it's not where my, my interest is really being grabbed in that way. Though obviously some people like work. And so sometimes you can give them work. They'll enjoy it. Mm -hmm. so it or or the what they think, what their expectations of yeah. the work that should be generated from the coaching, which is also really yeah. interesting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But yeah, in that case, I'll usually do something pretty custom. So Okay. All right. So I want to shift unless you have more to Please. say about the... No. Okay. No, I think that's, that's that was a good question. Yeah. The, so So this came up when I was writing about... So when I was trying to get like a quantitative assessment of what people would pay for, you know, sessions or per hour or for a trial or trying to, trying to frame all of these questions in so many different ways to try to get it to mean something or try to tease out some meaning from it. I had a lot of trouble and I felt like on that question alone, and I, and I've had like increasingly interesting run-ins with, it seems like the way people value what it is that we're doing in a coaching setting. Mm -hmm. I found that like kind of displaying this as like these people would pay such and such per hour and, and that seems encouraging mm -hmm. or whatever. But really you could write an entire, I don't know, dissertation on people's associations with what this type of thing means for them in their life and the value that they attach to it. It's just so unbelievably complex that I thought it would be fun for us to 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 approach it, especially because, you know, w w within the kind of conversation of people who are searching for coaches, obviously they may find wildly varying quotes for what it would cost yep. per hour or monthly or whatever packages people are selling or something like that. Yep. And I often get a question of like, what's a reasonable hourly rate? Why do you charge what you charge? What's your sort of justification and reasoning process for what you charge and, and, and all of yeah. that. And even people who, you know, and, and then when, as far as it relates to my own personal practice, having situations where I would think that I'm, I don't know how much I'm really doing for them. And yet they're consistently willing to, to pay a high mm -hmm. rate or something. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then people for whom I'm, I'm like fairly certain that this is really important for them. And yet because of their associations with money or their, their their personal circumstances or whatever they're just not willing to part with o over a certain amount for what this thing is classified in their head as being definitely yeah and I, I feel like what's probably underlying that is so much to do with how much people value improvements in their perception and emotional state of various mm -hmm. kinds yeah, it's it's hard because like we're starting to get more abstract than, than maybe can be helpful. But 
I suppose it comes down to to something like that, where some people I've met are just they would pay a large share of their income to keep having this occur for them. Yeah, because it yeah, is so yeah, important definitely. to their felt quality of life or their productivity or whatever it is. And then other people who I don't I don't doubt that in some ways they may have as resonant of experiences that just in the end, when the final accounting comes down to it, they just would never pay certain rates for, for things. Yep. So I'm wondering if you if you've encountered this, if you've got particular thoughts about this. Yep. Maybe if they Definitely. could be angled at a person who's trying to think about like what's a reasonable rate for me to be paying? Yep. What what they could consider in in sort of a a thinking process like that. Yeah, I'll give the most boring answer first. The most boring answer is that the rate has to support the livelihood of the coach and be compatible with the kind of operational constraints of coaching, which is to say there's a limited number of people you can see a day. It's a uh, sort of a socially engaged type of job. So uh, for a lot of people, it will have different recovery time and different recovery process. Um, and so there are very distinctive hard limits on how many people a given coach can see and how many, even how many days they can work reasonably because at some point you can't degrade the quality of the product beyond a certain point. Like you can't just have an autopilot. Um, I would say, you know, it's good to have certain autopilot moves in case you're having a really bad day for any number of reasons, but like you kind of like, you know, you won't maintain a healthy practice, a thriving practice that you enjoy if you're not able to actually really relationally engage with people. And mm -hmm. so that already constrains, you know, how many clients you could see per day or per week. And then you have to think about your budget and then you have to think about, you know, how much you want to be putting into savings and how much you need to cover expenses. And so, you know, I think I think with all of those caveats, uh, most people find that charging above $100 is necessary for them, most coaches. Um, not everyone, and, and also there are certain discount programs or, you know, other other processes that coaches can use to structure their offerings to allow them to charge less. But I would just say, like, a person should not be shy or offended if it's above 100. Um, and then people put it at different places above, but I would just say, like, that's not something to be shocked about because it's actually just there are constraints on like the physical body and time and energy of the coach. This is not actually that boring to me because what, okay. what, what, what I think <laughs> another way to like comment on what you you're saying is you need to sort of assent to the lifestyle choices of the coach in some sense, mm -hmm. which is somewhat reflected in the hourly rate or you, you like yeah. there are signals of it in the hourly rate. Like I think people could, could tend to think that they could glean more than they probably can from that. But mm -hmm. If you're like a person who's a decamillionaire or more, and the coaching rate's like a thousand dollars an hour, you could endorse that you actually don't want to be working with someone who has a low hourly rate, because yeah. you probably want to work with people who run in certain circles and have a certain lifestyle and right, understand exactly. the life that you have and all that stuff. And so, you know, yep. if if uh, if they're charging under a hundred an hour, that probably would would actually cut yeah. against some of what you're looking for in in the life they're trying to craft for themselves that's interesting yeah and i've known people for instance who have minimum session minimum lengths of like three hours because they believe that 
work needs to take a certain amount of time to like encompass everything in the person's actual like experience and world that needs to be covered and that'll be the minimum and then they'll kind of have like a trailing trailing end and they'll charge like like six hundred dollars or something for a session and they can do one a day <laughs> and it's like okay well you know that that has its own its whole like business architecture you know behind behind that which you could agree with or not but like you at least would probably look at that and be like that's not completely insane given what they're trying to do and like what they're trying to offer and I know for me I um I've had periods where I've worked a lot more than I currently do and for the most part they were accompanied with really really bad emotional mismanagement for myself of just like kind of taking on too much from session work and then not actually having a good place to process it or enough time to process it and and you know cumulatively that's just likely to produce burnout it's not it's not even necessarily like it's bad for the clients but it's just like at some point you can't make the business worth waking up every morning for i'm still struggling with that now yeah yeah i mean i i would say i i've cut back a lot and i i now don't do it full time and i i wouldn't i i would have to charge a lot more to do it full time to offer the same amount that i'm offering so part of my price point right now is set by the way i've structured it to integrate with other income sources and other things i'm doing yeah, this is a really interesting piece because what you take from sessions, as you say, and the need to process that and maybe like self-directed learning that you might want to engage mm -hmm. in as a result of the session, things you want to follow up on, ways you may be deficient in your understanding about certain things. So you want to learn more and then, and then give that to the yeah. client. That actually means that it's an additional cap. Yeah. You know, there's the energetic cap. There's the fact that it's not a scalable service, things like that. And then also what kind of work behind the scenes or space, at least behind the scenes, yeah. is required for you to not show up and be there on autopilot or something like that. Yeah, and exactly. That and that drives and, yeah, it lower. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. And then another way to do it, you know, is to have a an hourly rate, but to count all the hours that are not the in-session hours. <laughs> But like, you know, the prep time and the post time. And if you then, you know, charge the full time, you call it an hourly rate of whatever, it could actually be covering a lot more time. Um, so and, yeah. and I'm, I guess I'm, I'm a little bit speaking from the perspective of a coach who kind of doesn't want to be ripping people off, but like wants right. to make it a sustainable living. And I definitely think there are good reasons to, to ask for higher price points, such as the thing you're describing and, and maybe a segue also into the question of how people value the experience based on the amount they're paying for it, where I, I do feel, and we've talked about this before, that people who pay below some amount to me seem to more consistently miss sessions, more consistently be late, more consistently to treat it as a very casual thing. Is there, the people who are paying, is there an amount in your mind? Uh, I don't know what the cutoff is, uh, but I have like a below $100 an hour kind of like special privilege rate or like discount rate for people who are in financial need. And basically my experience um, has been that that results in, I, I think, lower quality sessions for them and more of my time wasted with cancellations and things. Mm -hmm. um, so so it's it's been quite interesting to me to think about that and to wonder almost if like by trying to be generous in offering that option, uh, if I've actually also done a disservice to those people by not setting up a container where they'll treat it as a certain type of experience worth a certain amount. And maybe to move it away from, um, well, an amount type of 
framing, but more like from from the vantage point of a person who's trying to decide whether something makes sense as a price to pay, even if it's like high-ish yeah. sounding to them. It yeah. could be like, do you feel like paying that amount, first of all, is like feasible, tenable, you know, all the basic checks mm-hmm. you would run. But like, is it going to pull you enough? Sort of like a really expensive gym membership or something. Like, is it... Yeah. Is it like you're you're putting enough money or resources or time into it such that you really do feel like you need to arrange your life and take it seriously or else it would just be like, it would feel to you pretty wasteful mm-hmm. for yourself and, and the person that you're asking to help you with that. And that could be a, a decent like approximator where it's like, okay, if it's, if it's below a certain point, then I, that's a throwaway. You know, if it's like... Yeah. 50 bucks an hour, I really could stand to like, just do that for six hours in a row or something. And like, it's not a big deal for me or something. But if you kind of tick up that hourly rate or something, and then ask yourself, will it ping enough in your, like your sensibilities that will make you want to, to like create space to respect the thing as like an exciting undertaking that you're willing to invest in or something like that. That would be. Right. Exactly some way to uh, fill out that range yeah yeah and then like there's all sorts of weird questions here where like you know some people will say if it doesn't cost a certain amount the client won't work hard enough to get the value and it's like 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 they're weird kind of mind games and i i personally am not a huge fan of the mind game like using your your interpretation of how the mind games work to set the price point, I would say, you know, thinking about it as a coach from from a sort of what's what's reasonable. How how is it a mind game? How's that? Uh, a mind game where you'll like start trying to choose a price that will be motivating in the right shape for your client, and then okay, you're like trying okay. to sort of like like tap into the client's desire to not have wasted their time. So, so there's like that. they will try harder to get good coaching, you know, like and and it's like there's something there's something there which I think is 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 not wrong, but I think you shouldn't organize your business plan around it. Um, and when I yeah, there's that by way of choosing the price point, right? And then there's that yeah. by way of telling them why you chose the price point, which can be a yeah. mind game in the justification, yeah. which I don't like yeah. either. Yeah, yeah. But you can't avoid, well, the problem is you can't avoid the mind games with money because we live in a society obsessed with money. It's just like, if you're planning to support yourself with coaching um, and you think it's at least moral to ask for money for your service, then you're already, you're already playing some games with some people because mm-hmm. they'll turn it all into games because people people will do that with money because of how our world works right now. (laughs) That said, I will say personally, it's important for me that coaching that I offer be allowed to touch things that I would not, in fact, in general, ask to be paid for. So I I think that being like being a um, support for a person through a profound spiritual experience, generally, like historically, it's not normal to be paid for that. And I personally uh, don't want the fact that I'm getting paid to sort of preclude me from if, if that if that is what a session calls for being a support in that sort of situation for doing that. So I do think of the session fee as less covering the content in the session and more covering the fact of these recurring opportunities and this opportunity to build a relationship where certain kinds of very profound things can happen. I like that. But I it's think... hard. It's hard for me. I, I sometimes go through phases where I'm like, 
wow, I feel really uncomfortable being paid to be this, like, to provide this kind of service, to be of service in this way, because it's actually really spiritually aligned for me to be doing this. And the money aspect brings in a lot more, like, value presumptions than I, I want. And and I, I fantasize about how to offer the work without without charging for it. But I, I certainly haven't found an answer to that yet, except to sort of treat it more like you're paying this recurring amount for something you don't know exactly what it is but sometimes it'll be very profound i think the way that i i look at it that could be compatible with that is i would do a lot of it for free and do in some situations depending Mm -hmm. on who it is and and what's going on but that that if the relationship is is structured such that you need to do this for me at this time consistently and Mm -hmm. yeah put on a sort of like professional, you know, cap or something when you yep. do it. And that pulls me away from the opportunity to do it for free for other people. Then, yep. then that makes more yeah, sense exactly. to me or something. Exactly. But we are fortunate, I guess, to be in a, in a profession or you're like half in a profession or I don't know how you yeah. would consider that, uh, where, where we, we would give a lot of that for free away yeah. for free. And, and that can make it really, I could see how some coaches, would struggle with that quite a bit. Yeah. And in fact, I think it's probably a good sign if you ever, you know, end up struggling with that every now and yes. then, like everything from the things itself to a willingness to go over time with clients and yeah. kind of like stretch yourself, a willingness to really chase problems after a session is over and keep something on your mind. And, yeah. and you know, like what does that mean in terms of the value of this thing? I think actually people that are, unfortunately, you know, I don't know if it would be torturous for them, but they're like on the right track in terms of like integrity that they're bringing to, to the profession in some sense. Yeah. I think that that's right. I think coaching has a lot of different forms it can take where it's like, if you really want to do something very like professionally shaped, you can make it that, and you can have a lot of formulas and sort of have a lot of like rules about where you will and won't go in order to keep it sort of in the box. And I I have no actual issue with that at all as a form of coaching. I think it's a lot of what's great about professionalism is it like standardizes delivery. And so it's like really great to just know what is there. I would say my, my background is more, more about customizing to the person. And so it looks kind of different every time. Some of the greatest practitioners that I feel like I've ever come into contact with cannot reliably produce a thing Mm -hmm. for people. It's, it's too taxing for them or they're part of mm-hmm. the reason why they're so skilled is that they need to go on these like journeys where they kind of yeah. are unreachable for several months at a time or you know, yeah. all these yeah, things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's time yeah. to meditate in the woods. Right, right, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, then it's like they come back with this like basket and they're like, who wants something from the right. basket? Of, of well, we, we should hope so. Yeah, yeah. yeah one, one hopes. Yeah, right, right, right. That's the best case, but. But no, and, and it's hard because I think, um, I mean, all of that, I, sorry, I, I think I have a tendency to at least want to contextualize some of these things a little bit, you know, more broadly than just what is that experience for individuals. But I think we kind of right now, you know, say in the West or say in America have a, I would say a problem of having kind of deeply underinvested for at least like 
a couple generations deeply underinvested in training role models for people to scaffold skillful, well-socialized behavior on. And so you kind of end up in a situation where, you know, a lot of people need custom help to get over certain humps in their own development. And unfortunately, there aren't a lot of people around that they can just look and tap. Say, how did you do what you just did? I'm trying to do something similar. I think like coaching wouldn't be quite the quite the industry that it is if we had more of that. So yeah, the coach having all of these opportunities to be transmitters of different types of skill and like specializing perhaps in like certain populations or certain skills or certain growth challenges. I think it's kind of par for the course when there's so much need for some sort of wisdom, some sort of like representation of how to, how to live well. Yeah, the, the, the conversation on this could get expansive real fast yes, when definitely. we talk That's about why I role models. That's why I apologize. In, in, no, 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 but, but also like yeah. fragmenting of yeah. moral and ethical values in a society and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and having to patch those together for people and help people make sense of that and, and everything. All very fascinating stuff would be an amazing, also another, you know, offshoot. Yeah, offshoot episode. Offshoot episode. But yeah, I there's one last piece I, I definitely because we are kind of coming up on time, but there's one last piece for me with um with coaching, just to kind of go back to your original framing of like how do you think about the value to the client or to the coachee of the experience? Very, very early on in my kind of coaching career, there was a period where I and a few other coaches were thinking about trying to do like bounties, asking people, you know, how much would it be worth to you if you could get this issue solved? And and of course, like and like like really, really, truly solved, you know, you know, we'd, we'd agree on what that meant. And then there'd be some kind of like ten thousand dollars, fifty thousand dollars, one million. And what, what you find is a lot of people have problems that they would pay extraordinary amounts of money to actually have solved. But also there's almost no contract you could imagine creating that, you know, where they would really feel confident that if they were to pay out, it would be for the right reasons. It's very hard to get all of the like technique and, you know, maybe maybe it gets solved, but then they'd really rather not pay now that it's solved and like all, all, all sorts of weird things. And, and, and sort of just enough enough confusion about how to put numbers on these things, kind of conflict of interest principal agent problems that I sort of concluded that it's right to think of a bunch of this work as uh, extraordinarily valuable, perhaps much beyond what people would even think of themselves as willing to pay, but also not currently possible in the available formats, um, something that can be actually priced in proportion to its actual value. And so I, I tend to think the work has the potential to be extremely valuable for at least a subset of the people who receive it, but I try not to charge charge for that. So it is still offering it at a massive discount the way that I approach offering it. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Because it is, I mean, it is something where it's like to actually release and relinquish some deep bad feeling you've been carrying for 20 or 30 or 40 years forever is a possible thing and it's not just possible in coaching it's possible from lots of different types of help but like you know the the cumulative effect of that on your life and your ability to relate to people and be understood by people and have a good time really really quite high 
Mm-hmm. So, I, and I think I think the kind of work that we do has a lot of that potential for people. Yeah, I mean, especially the the type of coaching that that I yeah. suppose you and I engage with, which is why I really want people to aim high in terms of when they mm-hmm. come to me in the beginning and talk about what it is that they'd like to to try and do. Yeah. And it, it is, in fact, like, I don't know. Yeah, I guess I'd be curious about your take. Like someone comes to you and they're sort of like, Emily, I want help with my productivity, you know, basic productivity mm-hmm. and stuff. Do you feel like that would be correlated with, you know, the the amount that they would value the thing at? Or something, because I guess if it's like they have a sense of the grand possibility of kind of deep change, it could be the case that they would then value the thing much more if they're sort of like, hey, you know, this could be really good for eking out, you know, several more hours a week or something like that. Yeah. I don't know if you take clients on like that at all. So maybe you don't. This is this is like a very this is a very like a very Zen answer, more Zen than I would have expected. But like, honestly, like I don't overthink it. Um, uh, by which I mean, honestly, I, I find it really hard to know how the, like the estimation of value, the experience of possibility, how all that will like hang together in the client's mind and connect to their sense of their willingness to pay. I, I kind of, it just, there's too many factors and they can kind of hang together in too many different ways. So like if someone wants to pay my normal rate to try to get a little bit more productivity, it's like, wow, I don't, to, to me, it's surprising that the equation would work out, but, um, but given that it did work out and there's all this other stuff we might get into as a result of trying to work on the productivity, like I'm game. And yeah, so I definitely, I just, I basically just try not to scope the rate or like, like tie the rate too much to the issue because it's, I find it just too hard. It's too easy to overthink for me, too hard to know. And I think there's always a risk of people like deciding that the value isn't there for them or deciding it's not worth the rate. I think for me, I mostly don't worry if they decide that. I think it it can just be true that like it's sort of like the number of hoops I would have had to have jumped through to prove that it was worth it was like too many in too many different directions or I thought the hoops were poor judgment, poorly poorly constructed and that I I wanted to just try to convince them to drop the hoops or you know any number of things I might have failed to do in the time I had to like you know to make the sale as it were and and I'm okay with that I think usually it's a good sign that the relationship would have had too much friction of the wrong type to be right to invest in and, and at least for me and I this is definitely me speaking from feeling comfortable with the amount of work that I have but but I haven't had a problem getting and retaining enough people at rates that I'm happy with. So I feel like if people leave, it's it's probably good judgment in some, operating through some mechanism, and I don't worry about it too much. I guess this is good for both sides to have a disposition to just try to get models on this for yourself by coming into contact with mm-hmm. reality over some amount of time, both on the coach and coachee side. So it's sort of like what makes sense as something to charge and whether you're quote unquote skillful enough or like able to retain people at that rate to attract people Mm -hmm. at that rate whatever is all about maybe trying for like six months to a year like can you can you hold the rate or or move it up and down and 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 see what what happens with people there i always give reduced rates for the first session also yeah yeah yeah. um i i do i do an intro call which is just a getting to know you which is completely free 
Um, and then I do a first session, which is at half price. Okay. See, I, I don't, I have a, we're doing this now model. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. No, and, no, uh, different ways and, but, to do it. Yeah. And, and on the, on the coaching side, there, there could be ways of, of mining some of this experience, but like, let's say you have an experience at committing to some number of sessions at, at such and such hourly rate. If after however much time you're getting you know, a lot of benefits from it and it just feels good and it doesn't feel super painful to be parting with that money, then maybe just yeah. like let it ride. And, and like you said, don't overthink it in that sense. Like I, I think yep. some people may have a tendency to like want to see if they can get that thing cheaper or whatever. Yep. I'm not sure because of, of whatever associations with money. But also yeah. if you get the sense that something is really quite good, and you would be willing to pay a lot more for it. And, and maybe you could find a coach that could deliver that more reliably than it could be that even though it's possible to go find a coach that, you know, I refer people to coaches that have a lower hourly rate than me all the time. And I mm -hmm. used to feel very insecure about that. And then I was sort of like, well, I think that I probably offer something. I'm not saying it's better, but I offer something reliably that some yep. number of people are fine paying that price for. And then yep. there are people who will, will price it lower. But maybe on a coachy side, it's like if you feel like you got a really good shot at bettering yourself in this way that could be, as you say, really like heavy tail transformative in some sense and you spot somebody who feels like they could facilitate that kind of thing, then yeah, it could be worth a lot. And it also could be worth a lot. We, we haven't really talked about, we're coming up on time here, but we haven't really talked about like temporal considerations. It's like, maybe it's worth a lot for six months and then you're fine. And I think a yeah, lot of yeah. people are making calculations in their mind. Like if I do like, if I do this hourly forever or something, you know, then, then I'm going to be locked into this. Yeah, and, I know. You know, so you could be paying what would seem like a, a fairly steep rate to you for a temporary amount of time and then feel like you got enough out of that to go for, to get a lot of mileage out of it. That's yeah. also another model that sometimes I encourage with clients who are on the edge of, you know, whether they feel like they can afford it. And I try to say to them something like, you will be affected by an intention of trying to harvest and extract value from every minute if you're kind mm -hmm. of haunted by your resource limitations. So it's sort of like maybe just try to, if possible, separate that in your mind as like, okay, this money is spent and I'm investing mm -hmm. it for a short period of time. And at yeah, the end yeah, of I've that actually period, had people do that with me. Yeah. yeah, at the end of that period, revisit it and... I'm cool if you if you don't want to continue, although I'd be curious to know why so I could better my practice. But but yeah, right. if that's if that's the way it works, then that's good. And that okay, that can also help the coach orient on what things to hand you during the session if it's going to be likely yeah. to be only six sessions over a month or two months or something. Then it's like yep. they can they can a, a mindful coach that's trying to customize it for you can set you up in a way that you can continuously hopefully get more value out of what you talked about, even in those six sessions. Yep. Can I add one last thing and then uh, you can add whatever you'd like it. for right. however long you'd I'll like. Add... <laughs> well, the last thing I'll just say from my own experience as a person seeking help from practitioners, that there are a handful of people who 
I don't see regularly, but I would really pay quite a lot for getting one or two sessions a year from them. And just like, especially like save it up, like know, know that I have a certain issue that I really want this kind of help with and know what they can do. And I've met them before and I know them pretty well. And it's basically like people who kind of, they don't have a blank check because I don't have an infinite bank account. I can't say any amount I would pay it, but like there, there's a, there's a lot they could ask for that I would be willing to pay. And, and the reason for that is it, it like sort of is for me something that they've, they've passed all of my checks, like They've convinced me they can do things. They convinced me they have skills that I value. They've convinced me that they can see beyond me in a bunch of ways and they can facilitate things for me that I can't do for myself. And they're kind of just like safely in that bucket. And it's awesome to have people there. And I think for myself, because I have that relationship with a couple people, that's sort of what I'm trying to hold myself to in my relationships that I seek with my clients, even if they're more regular, like, okay, it's a weekly thing, so it's just not feasible for it to be you know, certain prices for a lot of people's budgets. But um, but still just wanting to be someone where it's like you feel like you're being aided by someone in your own life quest and you found someone who's actually willing to be in that role for you. And it's like amazing. Like that's just like I think, you know, people can people don't have to start there. People don't have to know how to hold a person in that kind of regard starting out. But I think for myself, as far as the standard that i I hope to live up to is like you're just like happy to have met someone who can help you with the stuff that you know you need help with that's so nice because in the end retaining that type of person or multiple types of that person mm -hmm. can save you money <laughs> or, or something like over time yeah. it's like if you feel like you found they, they pass checks and you found that they can reliably do this and i mean i mean there's probably just a really high value in having someone who is that kind of partner in the life journey, yeah. but also that you can just pop up, hopefully, you know, every now and again and say I'd like a session. And if that is so impactful just by doing that, I think that that's something that's, uh, that strikes me as one of the, the very best ways a, a relationship like that can be constructed actually yeah not to need to have to to set it up regularly although regularity is is great in a lot of ways especially for unless there's a practitioner who has like freaky abilities which is out there finding out whether they can reliably yeah. do things for you and whether you feel comfortable taking them on the journey and stuff like that yeah if you if you've been doing this for a while for for listeners who've had multiple coaches over years or decades or something like that then it can be good to to think of these people that way and try to accumulate a nice little network of people you can yeah. you can tap on the shoulder every now and again. Because then you can make the best referrals. And I yeah. always really like being able to do that. Yeah. And definitely for me, just in terms of regularity versus being more sporadic, I uh, would say I, I did a few years of very regular session type work. And it's a lot. It's intense. It's good for unsticking a lot. But I know for me, at least, sticking with that level of intensity would have been cutting against too many other things I wanted to prioritize. So I think it's like, it's definitely worth doing. It's worth checking in at some point about whether that's actually the lifestyle you should be living. That's a great point. Oh, man. Yeah. That's a great point. For, for a curious listener, I would say my current situation with that would be that I am streaky. 
uh, as you probably know, because Emily is also my coach. So I <laughs> will occasionally be very consistent in mm-hmm. you know wanting sessions and doing things. And then I will disappear for a month or so at a time or maybe more. And then I'll pop back for, you know, almost weekly, maybe bi-weekly sessions or something yep. like that. And and I think that that's just calibrated to like deeper needs and opportunities that I might have for that kind of work. And yep. that cadence, as long as it as it works for the other person, tends to work really well for me. So I also would encourage people to try and customize that if they feel like they have the liberty with whoever they're working with to say like, is it cool if we go through phases of this potentially? Will this impact your practice? Because that's also a really nice considerate, a mark of consideration for some clients I have is they're like, hey, if I cancel this or if I like disrupt the cadence or whatever, like, does this affect your income yeah. levels because you're a freelancer and whatever? I'm like, oh, that's so sweet. Thank you for caring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and so where possible, that would be really nice to give those people notice because um, if they're trying to uh, help you in your journey in your life, then they also need to be able to forecast their finances and such to keep them stable yep. where possible. <laughs> yeah, where possible. Okay. Well, I think this could be a, a good place to wrap here. Definitely a good place to wrap. So I want to thank Emily Croteau. Yeah, it's, it's Boppy. It I want to thank Emily Croteau <laughs> for, for joining me today. Thank you, Emily. Thank you, Pete. It was really fun to be on. Yeah, of course. And sort of fun to kick this off with you. I'm excited to see where it goes. Absolutely. You are a lovely uh, first guest for an, our inaugural episode of Any Thoughts On, the place where people who are seeking guidance and people who are seeking to guide others are one and the same. I'm T. Barnett, personal strategist. Uh, you can learn more about coaching, about coaching training, about this podcast. You can find this podcast on my website at tbarnett.com. And uh, thank you, listener. First time listeners, appreciate you being here. Last time listeners, I appreciate you being here. And uh, for those who are going to chat with us next time, um, I look forward to, to bringing you more good stuff. So goodbye for now. Thank you.